pelvis. Dear young rocker, there'll be things that you'll spend the rest of your life trying to piece together and figure out. And no matter how many times you try and fit the pieces together, going over the fragments of evidence in your mind, it may never make sense. Certain things you just never get over and you don't have to. And although it's possible to continue living, it's okay to not be okay about certain things that have happened. We live in a culture where you're expected to move on or get over it, heal quickly. And if you don't, then you have a problem and it makes people uncomfortable. It's okay to pause and sit with your feelings, just like how you used to sit with your loneliness. And the loneliness your once ever-present companion would be replaced with a ghost instead. One that would forever haunt any room that you entered. Young Rocker. There were times I was sick of living in a shadow. I'd get sick of the looks and ways in which people spoke to me and would pack up and move to another city, just like I'd end up here. I had moved to Atlanta to get away from all of it, but some of the time, all I wanted was to live in his shadow because it was all I had left of him to feel what he would have been feeling, go where he would have been going, do what he would have been doing, drink what he would have been drinking. It was now 2009, and I sat at a bar in Little Five Points where we used to hang out together. I ordered exactly what he would have ordered. Um, yeah, tell him more do, please. Straight, and make it a double. Why are all these people here on a Thursday night? I had come here to be alone and sit with everything. My old manager, Julian, who booked me in my first gig downtown when I was 14 and 15, now stood pouring my drink. I sat in front of him at a stool at the bar. I had just turned 19. The age Kyle was when I first fell in love with him. Oh, uh, we do open mic every Thursday. You should sign up. I'll, uh, I'll think about it. I hadn't played in what felt like forever. Kyle was always my roadie, driving me to shows out of state or in other cities hours away. It had always been a relief having him there to talk to the sound guy, who usually would have talked down to me. He used to handle everything like that. I figured maybe I'd sign up. Try something new without a mirror. Okay. Yeah, sure. Add my name to the list. There were pages filled with names. 
It would probably be hours before I went on. I took a sip of my whiskey, and in my mind, I started going over all the pieces in my head, trying to make sense of it all, visualizing an evidence board, pinning all the pieces together with string that lay in knots on the bar stool beside me. Exhibit A. I sat flipping through the diary we'd kept together, where we wrote love letters back and forth to one another, going back to the very start of it all. Flipping through the leather-bound pages, which had the density of a Bible, spanning through the years 2006 to 2009. August 8th, 2006. Dear Kyle, you're upstairs right now, but I need to write this down. I need you to know I have never loved anyone like I've loved you. Probably a bad opening statement and very cheesy, but I swear to God that it's true. I've never held someone and felt a feeling that was just this right. Any person I've been with before you, looking back, I felt so uncomfortable and felt like they were untrustworthy. You may not believe this, but I usually never trust boys but I do trust you. I hope at the same time, you know, I know you'd never hurt me. I'm not gonna leave you. Not in the winter and not ever. The ways in which our love was so perfect then is almost indescribable. I loved him so much. I still do. And so, I continue to try and drink my way back through the wormhole of time, where we once were. And I thought maybe if I drink enough, I could force my way back into the place I once knew and loved most. Back there, right next to him. I didn't even like whiskey, but... I took another sip. The memory of how he tasted when I kissed him came back to me and reminded me of all of my favorite moments we shared together. Images and sounds from our budding romance came back to me in pieces. The time we drove into Atlanta and went to the Plaza Theater to catch the midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time and got all dressed up. I wore my handmade polka dot dress from my 8th grade school dance, and he wore a black blazer. We were the virgins that night, and promised not to rat on the other, branded with the red lipstick V on our foreheads. On the walk back to my car, my high heels started to hurt, and so I took them off. Because when you're 16, you don't really care about things like walking barefoot through the dirty streets of Atlanta in the dark. But Kyle cared for me. And insisted I let him carry me all the way back to the car. He scooped me up in his arms and carried me almost a mile back to the car. Exhausted, I wrapped my arms around his neck and laid my head on his shoulder. 
There were so many times we physically and metaphorically carried each other. And there were even times I'd saved his life. Like the time he got too drunk to drive and I drove us home. The time he suddenly went into a diabetic coma and we couldn't figure out why. I'd skipped the third week of my college classes and slept in the hospital bed with him, refusing to ever leave his side. We'd been together for three years, almost never apart. I wouldn't have even known how to leave him. Sewn together in that hospital bed, tangled up together in wires and plastic IVs. The doctors would come in, check his vitals in the middle of the night, trying not to wake either of us. Half asleep, I would overhear the whispers, commenting on the love they were witnessing. How sweet and in love we both looked. How adorable we were sleeping there. How caring we were to one another. And how they'd never seen a love like it. How they never bore witness to something so pure. The doctors told me if I had waited even ten more minutes to bring him in, he wouldn't have lived, and that I'd saved his life. My instincts to bring him in had been good then. Even though he was acting almost completely normal and saying he was fine, I could sense there was something wrong because we were cosmically connected, and I felt whatever he felt, even when we were miles apart, like two twins separated at birth. I thought about the time I came home from school, and he called me on the phone. Have you seen your room yet? I was confused as I walked into my messy bedroom. It's just my messy room. You didn't clean it. Buried underneath all the clothes thrown about, I looked to my left and I saw a vintage organ with wood paneling. I had always dreamed of owning one. I was inside a dream I didn't want to be awoken from, but Julian interrupted my memories with an announcement over the PA speakers. Okay guys, we're going to get you started with our open mic in about 10. Hey Nadia, you want another drink? Yep, keep them coming. I now sat on a bar stool, fidgeting with the evidence that was Exhibit B. The solid gold band on my left ring finger, twisting it around between every sip I took. Kyle almost kept his promise that he made to me when I was 16, that he'd marry me before my 20th birthday. But it didn't happen. We'd finally set a date a few months ago after he gave me the ring. The last time we were together, we were picking out wedding colors, yellow, white, and brown and decided on what we would name our children. I bought my wedding dress, an off-white knee-length vintage gunny sacks dress that I'd planned on pairing with my knee-high Fry Campus boots. He thought it would look perfect next to his tweed brown suit. We were going on four years together, and we both felt like we'd finally settled into ourselves and the life we had wanted together. There have been brief moments where we were on and off for a few weeks out of the year. And that's when I would write music again. And the music evolved from a puppy love little 15-year-old girl 
to an emotionally devastated, knowledgeable woman of 16. And I can't make you love me anymore. And I can't keep you waiting at my door. The times where we would break up for a week or so, I felt like each time this happened, I would grow learning more about the world around me and about myself and about him. Despite how right things felt when they were right, it wasn't always perfect. There was a darkness in him that would surface suddenly, but consistently, every year, from late February through early June. I would see the colors in his eyes shine only briefly through those months. His love for me the first year seemed to break the pattern. The second year was a shock, and by the third, I became almost accustomed to it. Like a set alarm, your brain subconsciously memorizes, awakening before it chimes. It became predictable, and I thought I knew exactly how to handle it. I always stuck around to support him through it, even when he tried to push everyone away. During those months, the few brief moments where his eyes would light up again, made it completely worth the hard moments where he seemed to be completely unrecognizable to either of us. I just wanted to be supportive, and I wanted him to know I was there, no matter what, and it was going to be okay. And then, just like clockwork, he would return to me, as if we had just met all over again. The Kyle from summer of 2006 would return, and the Kyle that was there from March to June would lay dormant for another eight months. Three drinks in now, I started to think about the many questions left unanswered. What did he say at the last party we went to when he got mad at my friend? Why did he suddenly change moods? I thought he was drunk. He'd been drinking a lot over the years, and one contingency of us getting back together was that he would quit. So when he made his last call to me, I thought he'd been drinking again, putting cigarettes out on his arms again, driving drunk again, being reckless again. And I told him it was okay. I loved him and that I'd see him tomorrow. I thought that's what you did when you love someone. You forgive them and then give them support and space they need to heal and process. Now that we were getting married, I thought that's what grown-up married people do. They support one another and give each other space they need. They didn't chase each other around like children showing up at each other's houses in the middle of the night to only find the other had also driven to the other's house. Both of you passionate and struck by the insanity that is love. Dear Nadia, I love you exactly the same as when I first met you. I just have a hard time with things every now and then. Sometimes it lasts 30 minutes, sometimes it lasts for months. I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with you. You don't need to worry about that. I do apologize for being like this though. I don't want to be. I want to be happy and excited about things, but I just can't. I'm sorry, 
I hate it for you. I'm not as bad as I used to be, though. Baby, I've told you before, but I don't think you understand just how much you do for me. If it weren't for you, I probably would have... I don't even know. It's not even things you do for me, just being with you, seeing how you live. The way you do things, I don't quite know how to explain it. I've got the blood in my body, you're the heart that pumps it. I love you so much. Don't worry about me. It worries me if you worry. I love you. Kyle. Excuse me? Hey, yeah, can I get another one of these, please? Thanks. just gotten matching tattoos the year before, forming exact mirror images of each other whenever we held hands. Exhibit C, a bumblebee, because that was my nickname for him. And then a year later, we got matching Cold Rose's tattoos, because that was the album he said reminded him most of me and falling in love with me for the first time. I never would have thought back then when we were singing those songs, falling in love, that I would one day be singing Ryan Adams' Peaceful Valley at his funeral. In the span of one week, I'd gone from planning a wedding to planning a funeral. And although I'd written about it a thousand times, sang about it in songs years prior, nothing could have ever prepared me for this. Back when he was alive, after a perfect night out together, I would suddenly burst into tears from the sudden thought entering my mind. What if he dies? Nothing was ever even amiss, except my brain on loop. What if he dies? What if he dies? I would sit alone in my room, wiping the tears that would suddenly appear on my cheek. And I would remind myself I was being silly. There was no reason at all to think that. I was just being paranoid, and he was alive and with me, and everything was perfect. There were no reasons for such dramatic delusions. The first time my subconscious suddenly willed the thought into existence, poisoning the air between us, I had pulled up GarageBand on my computer with no thoughts at all on what I planned on singing about. I hit record, started playing guitar, and freestyling lyrics. Completely off the cuff, I sang.
I finished the song and sat confused, uncomfortably jarred, sitting there in silence, processing the words that just slipped out of my mouth, a record of some sort of premonition I hadn't even been aware of. At the time, we were happily together, and I was 16. Even back then, even if you told me what lay in store for my future, even with the words coming from my own mouth, a premonition in a song communicating from my deepest subconscious. Even then, I still wouldn't have believed it. Or you, or it, or this. I thought back a lot about the songs I'd written and recorded back then when I was 16, just seven months into our almost four-year-long relationship, back when it felt perfect, back before the darkness started to show itself. full-time when I was working two jobs, going to day classes and online night classes on the weekends. I was focused on building a life for us. I graduated high school almost two years early so I could move in with him. I changed my major in college to be based around the plan of us having children, which was his idea. It was our idea, a plan we'd made together. Now, who was I? Who was I without him? He was my everything, my entire world. I hadn't even really played shows this past year. I was just fixated on building a life with him. Meeting him changed everything I'd ever wanted. And now what did I want? Everything he ever said, all the things between us. The conversations came rushing back to me as I circled back around, sifting through all the evidence. Dearest Nadia, if that was what we did, how we lived. I don't know if you can relate to that, but you're the, the first person I can't wait to see I when I first wake up. When I hold you, you're I feel so me. safe and carefree Ryan, and loved. I will never leave comfortable. I have no reason to. I'm just I have been moved to tears by how much I love you. Love is devastating. And I will end with that. I love you. Dear Diary, I'm writing this down, fearing my memory will someday fail me, and I never want to forget a single second of this. Is there a Nadia Marie here? Come on up, yeah. I finished my fourth glass of whiskey and slowly walked up to the stage. Uh, 
is a song I just wrote. Probably won't remember any of this. I'm so drunk. I don't know. My name is Nadia Marie. Take my life, bury me. You can even burn my body. Take his picture and take my soul. And as I started to sing, at the bar went completely silent, which was jarring. I was hoping no one would pay attention to my drunken, slurred lyrics, but everyone stopped talking. The sadder I got, the more they seemed to like it and love it. They got quieter, the louder the sadness in my voice got, which, to tell you the truth, I fucking hated. As I played this new song I'd written about him, the image of the last time I saw him haunted me. His mother sat on our couch smoking a cigarette. The police and paramedics were pulling me off of him. I'm going back over what the hell even happened before that. Moments start to come back in drunken fragments as I sing pouring out all my secrets on a stage for the entire bar to hear. The last time I saw him at the party, all of a sudden he got angry and I told him to sleep it off in the car. He started screaming at me and slurring and I'd never seen him act like this and I assumed he was drunk. He went to go sleep it off in the car, came back inside after almost four hours and then forcefully shoved me while I was jokingly slow dancing, middle school dance style, with arm's length distance between us with a stranger. Everyone was friends here, and we were all dancing with one another, laughing, playing Journey and Ario Speedwagon, dancing ironically like it was an eighth grade dance, three feet apart. The entire party followed him outside. Hey man, you can't shove a woman like that. He had slapped me once before, across the face a year ago, while claiming he was sober. And I just assumed that he was once again back to drinking again. The entire party now stood out in the yard, watching as I got into my car to take him home to our apartment. I told him I didn't understand what was happening, that nothing was going on, and he'd walked in at the worst time. All the boys and all the girls were just ironically dancing together. Everyone was pairing off and it was just a joke for one song. Just bad timing. I pulled up to the red light a block away from our apartment and he suddenly got out of the car, slamming the door with both of his hands, using the strength of his entire body. And for the first time, I decided to give him space. I called him and left him a voicemail and told him I loved him, that I was going to sleep at my mom's house, but would be back in the morning. After fights in the past where we would both feel bad, I'd show up at his house and he'd show up at mine, and we would call each other, realizing we were at the other's house to say sorry. It felt harmless at the time and comical. He would call me the day after the party to apologize and then suddenly started screaming again, not making any sense. I don't understand. Every, every 
Everything is fine between us. It's okay. I'm not mad and I'm not leaving you. We're together. I'll see you tomorrow. I love you. He would calm down and we would start talking again about something else. About how much we loved each other. Laughing and just shooting the shit. Talking about our plans for the week. And then out of nowhere, he would start screaming again. I didn't understand or know what to do. He would suddenly hang up on me and then call me right back. This went on for an hour or two or maybe three. I just assumed he was drinking during the day again. I told him I couldn't keep going back and forth about something that didn't happen, that we were okay and everything was fine and I'd see him tomorrow. It was really painful and I didn't know what to do. He just kept calling, starting off the conversation as one person, switching to another, then switching back, then hanging up, then calling back. So, for the first time ever, I decided to not smother him, to give him space and time to cool off and sober up. I had made plans with friends to go out to eat, so I drove across town to meet them. At the end of our meal, I stood in the parking lot, suddenly with an indescribable feeling in my stomach. I started driving around to different people's houses and different parties people were inviting me to, leaving upon arrival. I called Kyle a few times, but he was so mad he didn't pick up. Nothing felt right. Something was wrong. Something bad was happening somewhere. I just kept anxiously driving around, trying to both run from the feeling while also trying to find it. It was unnerving. It felt like half of my soul was leaving my body. I drove around trying to find the place that felt right again, but the darkness and loneliness followed me and grew. What was this feeling? I had had it once before when I was in a car accident as a child, moving from the front seat to the back, telling myself not to fall asleep, stay awake, preparing myself for the car to suddenly flip. I watched as my mother pulled away in a deep pit in my stomach, stronger than any feeling of loneliness or sadness, but more of a, oh fuck, feeling you can't stop. The internal instinct to brace yourself. But in this moment, what was I bracing myself for? After nervously bouncing around from one party to another, I drove to my mother's house, and then at 1 a.m., left and drove to our apartment and parked my car in the parking lot. And I stared up at our bedroom window for almost an hour, debating whether or not I should go in. No, no, I'm gonna give him space. That's what healthy adults do. I'll see him tomorrow. This is insane. I'm, I'm being completely crazy. I need to go back to my mom's house. I started my car and drove back to my mom's house. In the morning, I was awoken by a call from his mother saying that he hadn't shown up for work and I immediately drove straight to our apartment. 
running red lights, speeding as fast as I could to get there. My mother called asking me why I left so suddenly. You're supposed to be babysitting. Why did you leave? I have a gut feeling this is serious. Something's not right. I showed up to our apartment as his mother was walking up to our door. Wait, wait, I'm here. I, I need to see him. I'll let you in. I walked up to our apartment and opened the front door and found him there. I finished my song and was surprised, awoken from my reminiscing by the cheering from the crowd in the bar. I was so drunk at this point, I finished the song without even realizing where I was. But this is how it started. How I got back into music with these drunken open mics. Every day when I went to the bar, someone would ask me if I was going to perform again on Thursday and tell me they wanted to see me sing again. They would tell me if I planned on performing that they would come. Getting back into music was completely dependent on getting so much love, support, and encouragement from a community of strangers in a time when I felt so alone. I felt as though I would never recover from the loss of Kyle, but at this time, I was completely carried, lifted up by strangers, people I didn't even know. Playing these open mics, I met so many people living in the city, people who made music, and eventually I met some boys who wanted to start a band. And so we did. It was a dream. And I sang about the only thing I knew, Kyle. And I kept singing about Kyle. I started my first band, Nadia Marie and the Valentines. We'd practice in friends' tiny, grungy duplexes and unfinished basements and play out around town. My old manager from when I was 15, Julian, started booking us all over the city. And eventually, he booked us to open at Smith's, the first place I'd ever played in the city back when I was 14. Music was everything. It was how I coped. Writing about Kyle's death, pouring the secrets out on the stage. I could tell everyone in code what I was going through and then leave it on stage and walk away without anyone actually ever knowing. People just loved the songs. Their love for the music I was making made me feel understood in my grief. It made me feel closer to people, even while I was more isolated than ever. I tried to find a widow support group, but there weren't any that didn't take place in nursing homes or met more than once a year. There wasn't any support group for what I was going through. So, drinking Kyle's drink and singing on stage, the bar became the safe space for my anonymous confessional. I just get on stage and sing, singing all the things I couldn't say.
You've been listening to Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.